One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two year contracts, they said, What the f? Are you talking about you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 up front for 3 months plus taxes and fees. Promo for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the Food and Sight podcast where I, Kimberly Wilson, chartered psychologist and food producer, talk to you about food, psychology and everything in between. In today's episode, I'm breaking bread and breaking fast with Salma Hydrani. Salma is a multi-award winning writer and journalist whose work focuses on contemporary faith, food, women's health and social issues. She writes for national magazines and newspapers including ID, Vice, Broadly, Cosmopolitan, Stylist and Time Out London among others. Last year she was awarded the Young Journalist of the Year at the GG2 Leadership Awards and was the youngest ever winner of the Best Feature Award at the End Violence Against Women Media Awards for her work investigating so-called honour killings on British soil. This episode was recorded during the Islamic holy month of Ramadan, and as a practicing Muslim, Salma describes what it means to her and how a month of fasting affects her relationship with food and her faith. Along the way, we also discuss the rediscovery of traditional ethnic foods as part of the wellness movement, and how, as a result, she's reclaiming medjool dates as part of her heritage. At times, this conversation may feel a bit challenging for some listeners. I really, really hope you can stick with it because A, I think it's really important for us to have our opinions challenged and B, I think we can only grow by making room for the experiences of others. So hopefully you'll find this conversation interesting and valuable and I'd love to hear your thoughts in the comments underneath the Instagram post. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Salma Hydrani. It's going to be, well, I think quite a wide ranging, hopefully very interesting for all the listeners conversation. But for the benefit of the audience who perhaps haven't met you, haven't followed your work, if you'd like to introduce yourself. Okay. I love this bit. I've rehearsed it for ages now. <laughs> um, so I'm Salma Heydrani and I'm a multi award winning journalist and writer. Sorry, I had to include that. I was like, might as well now. Just amp up yourself. That's well. fine. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I write across kind of a lot of magazines and newspapers and my work spans everything from women's health to contemporary faith to eating disorders um, I'm quite interested in like food and health wellness faith the intersection between faith and lots of different areas like food and sexuality as well fantastic well welcome to the food insight podcast it sounds like this is going to be a perfect match <laughs> it's great to be for here you. thank you and so usually these breaking bread episodes kick off with the two of us sharing a meaningful food and discussing what it means and, and it's kind of relevance and symbolism to the guest. However, <laughs> we aren't today, at least we won't be at least for a little bit because it's Ramadan and you are a practicing Muslim. So you're fasting. That's right. Yeah. So, um, I, it started in like late May, I think it was. Um, and I've been doing it for maybe 
two weeks now, I think it's been. Mm-hmm. Um, it's been so interesting, the whole experience. We break our fast at about 9, well, today's 9.15, and then you have, like, a, I was saying to you earlier, mm-hmm. about a five-hour window to kind of eat and pray. But it's, for me, it's a great time to kind of show devotion to God and to learn a lot about self-discipline and also think about, it's also a great way to kind of curate healthy habits as well. Um, I definitely don't need to eat as much as I do. <laughs> Um, and you think about all the people as well that don't have kind of the resources that you do because at least I know that you know what at the end of this I'm actually going to eat I do have the the means to so it's actually it's quite humbling as well the whole experience so for the benefit of people who aren't familiar or perhaps have just a a glancing understanding of what Ramadan is within the context of of the Islamic faith could you give a description of yeah. it um, or, or the, and the purpose or the function of it okay perfect um, so Ramadan is a month where Muslims kind of they abstain from food and drink for up to 17 to 19 hours at a time so it's kind of a month where you kind of spend it with family um, you kind of show your devotion to God you pray more than you used to um, and obviously you don't get to eat and drink during the day but food becomes really interesting during this time um, it's kind of quite a communal affair I know every the first day of Ramadan is always quite special to me I I always spent it with quite friends and all family really and friends and that's for me the best meal apart from the last one actually where you're like yeah I can eat in the daytime again but yeah food serves such an important purpose during this period the lack of it and also the sheer quantities of it that you can eat in the evening so it's, for me I find it endlessly fascinating mm-hmm. and it's a period of time when you focus more on on your faith or yeah. and what it means to you is that yeah right? that's exactly it and a lot of kind of personal reflection you kind of reflect on your kind of um, relationship to God your personality changes a lot you have to let go of desires a lot of them so that that's quite challenging as well and yeah I find it like a great month a cleansing month per se um I find it really for me I really enjoy it I know a lot of people might find it quite quite a struggle but I think there's an opportunity to kind of develop your relationship with God and also with other people as well you kind of realize I want to be, you realize you want to be there for people you want to be a better person as well I think there's, there's a lot to be gained mm. really yeah and I think there's a, a really interesting way in which obviously this podcast is about eating but also about the idea of fasting and yeah. the abstaining from eating and has been a key feature of well, thousands of religions and yeah. cultures across history and and it's having a resurgence kind of secular fasting is having a resurgence yeah. now yeah. in terms of longevity and health optimization and can it help reboot stem cells and yeah. improve lifespan and i think that's a very interesting area of of work and research but I think there is also something very interesting about the absence of something which puts you into contact with your relationship with it ironically you know so when you have access to food all the time when you're eating all the time or have the opportunity to you don't realize or pay as much attention to your relationship with food as you would otherwise but when it's gone suddenly there's this kind of realization of the role that it plays for you either in your life or in your faith or in your job or whatever it might be yeah I mean I couldn't agree that more I think you put that beautifully actually um yeah it almost heightens it it's almost like it almost becomes fetishized dare I say where you're kind of you can especially when if I go out of the house and then I see other people eating in front of me I'd become was obsessed like you you want to smell it you want to be around it but then you also don't because you know that you can't eat for hours so it almost becomes this other this other being almost but then it, that kind of forces you to kind of re, to kind of reevaluate your relationship with it so um 
for me, I'd rather things that maybe I use food as a crutch when I'm feeling like down or stressed. And then other points where I rose that is also quite a tool for happiness. So I have, so if I had something to celebrate last week, I was like, yeah, let's go out and let's go out for a meal. And I knew I couldn't do that. So you realize there are so many ways that you approach food and when it's no longer there, you, you realize how important it is and what a big part it plays in your life. And when it, like when there's an absence of it, it, yeah, it kind of makes you reevaluate absolutely everything. Mm. And who knew food could do that? <laughs> Every year I feel like this and then a month later I forget all about it. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, you say, who knew that food could could do this? I did. That's why I got the book. <laughs> but I think it's, it's exactly that. And excuse the motorbike sounds. I'm in my office, which is right on Cavendish Square. So it, you get all the traffic sounds. So apologies for that. But yeah, absolutely. That food has, I mean, people will be so sick of hearing me say this but food has meaning and we use it in lots and lots of different ways to signify our beliefs whether they those are cultural or individual or religious or whether it signifies status like the kinds of foods you can afford to eat or your ambitions or your morals you know that food can be used in all of these kinds of ways and I think it's it's so important and that's not I think people think about that as a bad thing, like, oh, comfort eating is a bad thing. Using food to celebrate is a bad thing. And it's really not. It's understanding that this this incredible group of substances has so much potential and so much variability that we can make use of it in all of these different ways. And we just need to be aware of that. And I think... It's- yeah, I mean, I couldn't agree more. Um, kind of in Ramadan, food becomes kind of the centerpiece of everything. You spend the whole day thinking about where you're going to eat, what you're going to make, what you're going to cook, what food you're going to break it with, um, going to shops and just buying a lot which is what I do um, and then when you're eating you're thinking about the next meal after that and it, yeah it's, it's incredible isn't it but it's also communal I feel like a lot of people that I know a lot of friends and family that are also practicing and and they're do, observing Ramadan as well they it's the same kind of experience for them I mean I've gone to a few iftars in London there's one called the Ramadan Tent Project which I went last week and iftar um, is the meal the, the breaking fast meal at the why, end of the day yeah that is um, and it was incredible seeing so it was my first time actually seeing so many people under 110 come together and share it and for me it's quite a personal thing I mean I spent with my sister or my mom and dad or my older sister and her family but then to do it with that many people um, it was it was such a different experience for me it was quite overwhelming dare I say there's something for me that is quite personal and then you realize all these other people are also doing that in their houses with their families as well and then yeah actually all coming together and doing it together um yeah it was it was pretty overwhelming but it was also really beautiful in a way that this experience could be shared with this many people so yeah I'd definitely go back I'd recommend it as well I mean it's open to all so you can kind of get a feel for what it's like and and I guess that's worth mentioning is is that iftar is open to good believers and non-believers yeah, absolutely and what's the do you know what the um idea behind that is like why it would be open to non-muslims as well yeah i mean that's a great question i feel like um we're kind of living in quite i feel like we're living in kind of kind of turbulent socio-political era right now um i mean there was a recent statistic that came out that there was a 40 percent increase in hate crime in london against muslims last year which is quite which is quite sobering stats really so i feel like these projects are amazing kind of bridging the divisions between communities and allowing communities 
to come together that may not know anything about each other or may have this kind of idea that the right-wing media kind of perpetuates. So bridging these two communities together and a project like this kind of enables other people to have an access into what what a Muslim's really like away from kind of these negative and hysteric headlines almost. So somebody who doesn't know anything about Islam, say, or Ramadan might kind of pop in and then they realise, okay, so this is what it's like. It gives them an insight. I think that's really important when we're mm. when we're always glued to our phones and there's a kind of a lot of especially if you kind of consume a lot of news media, I know I do my day job, things like but if you're if you're if you're reading the daily mail every day, um, you aren't going to have this very narrow idea. And I don't believe your podcast listeners do. <laughs> People are welcome to read it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we all read the sidebar yeah. shame occasionally. Um, but if you are going to read like that kind of political content 24-7, you will have a kind of skewed idea mm. of what communities, like Muslim communities in England, say, are like. So, yeah, I would encourage kind of anyone to kind of visit these projects, take a look at it, open your mind. Um yeah, it's an, it was an experience for me, and I'm Muslim, mm. so uh, the benefits for people that aren't, it must, it must be so eye-opening. Have you, because you mentioned the statistic about the 40% yeah. increase in, in hate crimes, have you felt yourself like a change in your experience as a Muslim woman, or just as a practicing Muslim, over the last few years or in recent times? Has there been any shift that you've recognised? Yeah, I mean, what... I find really interesting is that I joined a news a media company uh, the month after Brexit in tw- and that, I think that was in 2016 and mm. that was I would say was one of the most interesting times of my life we seen we kind of saw a lot of kind of hate crime um, kind of spike up um, and then that summer there were French police kind of undressing women uh, French women on the beach um, mm. under the name of I kind of so-called that. liberation and for me that kind of made me kind of reevaluate what is it like to be a Muslim woman in Britain what is it like to be a Muslim women in Europe what why does liberation have this one one face why aren't there multiple ideas of liberated women mm-hmm. um, doesn't mean that you have to undress doesn't mean you have to dress in a hijab either there are, there are two sides of the coin always um, so being a Muslim woman in England right now and being a journalist at that and writing on contemporary faith as well has been absolutely eye-opening um I'm actually writing a book. I have written a book chapter on the on, on this topic, oh, this fantastic. exact topic that we're talking about, um, and it charts kind of experiences from 2016 post Brexit to now, um, and kind of everything from being trolled to kind of feeling unsafe to losing friendships as well. Um, you don't realise how many people behind closed doors are quite Islamophobic, and that kind of forces you to reevaluate it. And over these years, I feel like my faith has got stronger because it's also been under attack which I find quite interesting because for me when I was younger I wasn't as religious I wouldn't probably identify in the way that I do now um so I feel like I, yeah I feel like the fact that my religion has become kind of it's, it's kind of become like the bikini has become a symbol mm. of anti-Muslim hysteria it's made me reevaluate, but it's also strengthened my my faith as well that for me I'm not ashamed. I'm not going to hide away. Mm. So, yeah, that's a great question. Mm. Uh, can you say how the friendships were affected? Because presumably, yeah. if they were your friends, they yeah. knew you were Muslim to exactly. start with. Like, what, what happened? Exactly. So I had this one um, friend who, she, back when everyone used Facebook, believe it or not, 
<laughs> um, she once posted this thing about um, I can't wait for to move to Australia because there's going to be no bloody Muslims there, something like that. And I thought it was a joke because I couldn't believe that was coming out. I mean, she had to type that, so I was like, maybe it's a joke. And then I kind of noticed that this was actually happening over across several months. And one day, I just I could I because I realised actually this is her. I'm not imagining this. I just wrote underneath. Um, I confront her basically and it kind of unleashed a bit of a storm everybody in her account including missing women at that they wrote they kind of wrote underneath the same things that I was like we can't believe you're saying this this is unacceptable we drove her out of Facebook which was I'm not trying to bully anyone I think I was quite measured with it um and then she resurfaced months later and then she did try to apologize but I felt like almost the damage had been done I couldn't trust her but it also made me rethink who are the people next to us and I know a lot a lot of my friends the majority of them would never kind of talk like that would never speak like that but it makes you feel like is this what they think of me and you can't you have to reevaluate absolutely everything and you you go back as well your mind plays tricks like was she always like that is this something that's happened recently how did I never notice that you're almost blaming yourself in that sense like how can I be around that and it's a shame really I know I mean I know I'm not the only one that's kind of faced this I there was a girl who'd moved from Singapore and I was at dinner party last Friday and she was talking about how she'd lived in London for a really long time and post-Brexit was the only time she remembered it quite distinctly that she'd got four kind of four different people over the period after Brexit shouting kind of racist stuff to her and she was like I've lived here like a very long time and she remembers that week in particular and I feel like those things kind of, kind of can play on you even though it was a while back no I think yeah. that's that's absolutely true I think you raise or it makes me think of two things and Oh, quite a few actually so one is the way that you kind of wished that it wasn't real that yeah. somehow your friend was being misinterpreted or you know there was a part of you that was kind of wishing away yeah. her hostility and kind of outright aggression I think there's something quite poignant in that isn't there that the, you just didn't want to believe it yeah. and, and there were things that you didn't want to confront which I think were incredibly painful it makes me think of I mean, hers wasn't necessarily unconscious. She seemed quite aware of it, but the kinds of biases that we do carry around with us, um, which are coming more and more to the fore at the moment. I think that the Royal Society, maybe it's the Royal Society, not the RSM, it might be the Royal Society itself, recently released information about how they're trying to reduce unconscious bias in their employment practices, that they are aware that perhaps there are things that are preventing them from selecting a wider range of candidates that is nothing to do with actually the the abilities of the candidates that are coming forward. But it also makes me think of, of another, obviously a kind of a psychological factor, which is that these experiences of either underlying or social hostility, prejudice, bias really do affect you and they do affect you psychologically. And we know that one of the one of the key factors for um, the increased incidence of depression and psychotic illness in black and minority ethnic communities is the experience of, of prejudice and yeah. racism because it creates this constant sense of threat. It creates an ongoing experience of of being an outsider and of having to have this kind of hypervigilance, always having to look out for the person who's against yeah. you or is maybe going to attack you, whether that's verbally or maybe, you know, even worse, kind of physically. Yeah. 
yeah and I think for me that's for me that's kind of an experience in a lot of kind of minority share and um, I don't know if you were watching Love Island last night I yeah. wasn't I did write a post about it but I haven't yeah. actually watched but it but Love Island kind of is I think emblematic emblematic of this actually so um, last year there was um, an article I think this girl called Yomi who writes for the pool got this amazing article on why black women are absent why are they absent on Love Island and other reality shows and why are they made to be portrayed in a certain way and last night, I think there were, f- there's five girls, five boys in the villa. I'm not, this is not an excuse just to chat about love either, by the way. <laughs> Even though I, c- I would love to do that, by the way. Um, but I-, I will get there with my point. Um, there's five girls and five boys and Samira is the only black girl in there. And she was the last to be picked. Um, and if you kind of went on kind of black Twitter or Twitter itself, um, there were black women talking about all the different microaggressions that happened that day. Like one of the girls asked, oh, I bet you can twerk. And then where... <laughs> My eyes are rolling as well. And she was actually like, no, I actually can't. Like, that's the thing. Mm-hmm. Unconscious biases. And then there's the guy, a mixed race guy called Wes, who was like creaming himself for bed. And then one of the girls was like, oh my God, you're like creaming yourself. And the people were kind of adding this as kind of, mm-hmm. they were writing microaggression one, microaggression two. And f- there were kind of a lot of kind of think pieces today from black female journalists as well talking about why, well, they would never go on the show, they'd say, because they know that they would be picked last. And they go, there is an unconscious bias. And I feel like that permeates all levels of society. When you see it so on the, on your screen in front of you, and it's for entertainment, but unconscious bias is still playing out in even the spaces that you just want to unwind in. I mean, it, it kind of it forces you to make you to think. Actually, even in dating, in all, and that is a massive area of people's lives um, that affects you. So, and I, I mean, institutional racism exists everywhere in the boardroom, in education, in news media. But when you're trying to unwind, you see that in front of you. It's quite sobering, really. It's, it's really sad as well. Did you watch um, Emma Dabbery's program on Channel 4 last year called Is Love Racist? Oh, do you know what? I don't, but I absolutely love her work. <laughs> and I will bookmark that. She writes amazingly. On- it was really, I mean, in a sense, it was really fascinating. But in a sense, it kind of, uh, if you were from any of these communities, it kind of, it was just reiterating things that you already knew yeah, or certainly suspected exactly. and it was the idea that in particular we've particularly with very visual dating apps like tinder where you are making a judgment based on someone from one or two pictures um that that black and minority ethnic people get fewer matches and actually um, Asian men do very, very poorly because it's um, East Asian men, so Chinese and, and Japanese men, for example, do very, very poorly. Mm. And there's this kind of hierarchy of what's yeah. attractive, which is purely based on race. And she raised some really interesting questions about what it means when you say, oh, I don't like or I do like black people or Asian people or, you know, what kinds of sweeping generalizations mm-hmm. are you making about that race that you think is unattractive or attractive in an individual person? Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, maybe a year or two back, my Ed Touch, you got me to go undercover on these dating apps. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know that. That was an experience and a half. I'd never used dating apps. I actually still haven't to this day. Um, and I went on there. I started to be a bit of a, a, bit of a laugh because Tinder had really taken off at that point. Um it was so interesting I had people be like um come chatting they started chatting to me in like Arabic slang like hello Habibi stuff like that so not even like they're not even acknowledging me they start talking a different language and then then there'd be guys that use it like as chat like oh I just even imagine it now like oh so 
how are you finding London? I've lived here forever. I was born here. Um, so it's so just an assumption yeah, that you were exactly. a recent That was migrant. their first words as well. Their first words. So is English your first language? All the, all the ones that fetish, I was like, oh, I can't tell where you're from. Like, let me guess. So it just, it, I never, that whole time, I spent maybe a month on it. Not one person had a decent conversation with me, and particularly not a starting line. Just the fact that they thought I couldn't even speak English as well. I mean, I'm a journalist. <laughs> I was like, hell, baby, you're going right in there. Wow. Um, it, I, I had such joy when I deleted those apps. Like, it kind of made me reevaluate my own relationship with myself. I was like, wow, is this how people perceive me? Like, when I don't open my mouth, they think I'm not even from England. It kind of changes your idea of Britishness. Do you belong here? Mm-hmm. Um, it, yeah, it was... I'll send you the link, actually. Yeah, um, it was an experience and a half and a lot of women have these experiences as well it's not just me um I'm just thinking about it now I'm like wow I wouldn't dream of coming up to someone on a day I'd be like so how long are you finding London like, my friend recently actually so she's English but she gets the fact that she's Eastern European all the time so we've been on nights out before and guys literally hit on her being like so what part of Poland are you from and she just retorts back now it was like West Sussex <laughs> <laughs> and we bring it up all the time because she gets it all the time and it's interesting for an like an English woman who is white being on the receiving end of racism well I say racism mm. some sort of kind of hostility because the way that these men treat her like like oh where are you from mm. and she's like I'm English she has to convince them and it makes you think on the other side of the coin wow there's so many different ways of seeing this and interactions with men or mm. kind of opposite sex yeah it's, it, it's there's an, so much food for it, thought there is it's an, abs- it's an enormous area yeah. to think about um what was I going to pick up on? Oh, I think um, I wanted to talk about journalism. Yes, because you mm-hmm. mentioned uh, you had something to celebrate last week and then it made me think about um, you being an award-winning journalist. Thank so you. what were the awards that you won or what kind of pieces did you win them for? Thank you. So um, I won the GG2 Young Journalist of the Year last October. Um, so Thank you so much. Thank you. I've still got the award at home. <laughs> your bedroom. Like, yeah, I'm, your I'm, really, I'm, I'm so proud of it, actually. Sometimes I think, oh, did that actually happen? So um, kind of the works that they picked were um, works that I've done on kind of investigations on, on a killings, um, what it's like to have an eating disorder during Ramadan, um, to something that I did for Cosmopolitan, like a six page feature on been raiding around London so it kind of spanned all my works really marginalised communities health food um, a lot of my work kind of profiles a lot of um, underrepresented marginalised communities that's the kind of that's the kind of area that I'm really interested in and giving these communities a platform and another award that I won was best feature at the end of Violence Against Women Awards so I investigated honour killings on British soil and how when we think of honour killings we've got this idea that happens abroad maybe in Pakistan or India and honour killings are honour killings are when families murder their own kind of relatives or even their own like daughters or daughters mostly mm-hmm. out of the idea of shame and honor and protecting it and it's and it still hurts communities today and I kind of spoke I kind of tracked down survivors and spoke to them and yeah and I ended up winning an award for that I was really proud of that I kind of um Peter Jones I think that's been in the game for 30 mm-hmm. years um but I felt that piece it makes you realize how much privilege you have first and foremost and how much communities still are kind of bound by this idea of mm-hmm. honor 
Um, and it's and the idea of that it's also very much cultural. When you if you read the Daily Mail, you'd believe that it was a religious thing. There's nothing in kind of religious texts, any of them, in kind of Hinduism or Sikhism or Islam that kind of shit talk about honor and the way that communities culturally do. It's mm-hmm. a very cultural thing. So was a girl. There was a girl who'd gone to Pakistan, I think, and she you know there was a famous pop star in Pakistan, and she'd actually been murdered by her brother just for becoming apparently too westernized. Mm-hmm. And 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 the idea yeah. is is that the I mean it's almost always the woman isn't it has Ooh, yeah. has brought shame on the family exactly. for some sort of transgression usually Absolutely. a relationship or yeah. some sort of rejection of yeah. important cultural values. exactly or the other issues become too western I mean who decides who is too western to begin with um, and I read this recent article actually on LGBT South Asians who kind of enter sh- um, sham marriages to kind of protect their mm. family's name and th- I think there was a documentary on that recently and it made me think even in today people are going as far as to kind of pretend that they're having this big wedding so I think there's like a social network or something that kind of maybe if I was like a gay Asian man looking for like a lesbian as well so they can both kind of I say live freely but kind of protect their communities mm. their families and their family's name and mm. the fact it plays such a big role in, in today yeah it's, it's terrifying it's I think the idea of honour and humiliation is extraordinarily important so um, and it and it's not it is cultural but it's not just cultural and it and it i think it's cultural because it taps into very deep psychological concepts and for i i worked in prisons for a long time and one of the biggest if not kind of the single single most central cause for 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 violence or violent crime was the experience of humiliation of feeling as if you had been shamed in public that's that you had been rejected or someone had dismissed you and the intensity of that shame gets translated into anger and violence and the need to shift your position from being the victim to being the perpetrator and so so much of the work that we were doing was about understanding the roots of that shame and the roots of that humiliation in order to help the prisoner get a grip Mm. on on what they were doing and I think I think I for me as as very much an outsider in in terms of things like honor killings it's just bewildering because I can't get my head around the idea that it is less shameful to kill a relative to kill your own sibling or your own daughter or your own niece than it is for that person to date outside of their race or to reject their faith or whatever the cause of the dishonor might be it it feels like like outside of my understanding yeah absolutely even when I approached this it was so emotionally taxing um, the kind of impact these had on these young women's lives I mean some of them were 16 some of them lived in fact most of them lived in absolute anonymity and they had survived attempts on their lives yeah uh, yeah, one of them in particular, she ran away to live with her boyfriend. They lived in absolute poverty in the middle of, in the middle of nowhere, I think, in Northern England. She didn't really have qualifications. She couldn't really continue school. Um, and kind of the life chances that she had, it was absolutely horrifying. Uh, just horrifying, really. I mean, she, she's got her life, but what kind of life is that, really, when you think about it? Um, 
yeah, I mean, it was it was one of the only articles that I remember that had such an impact on me. I remember that I go very deep into an article, and when I come out of it, it's almost like coming up for air, really. Mm. But that was one of the ones that still even today that I I thought about it for a really long time afterwards and I felt like the story wasn't finished and I know that there are amazing groups like Karma Nirvana um, which kind of work and campaign to kind of end on a violence in the UK but these communities are, are for a lot of, for the most part are very much shrouding in silence mm-hmm. and there is this idea that you can't grasp your own community out so I think something like this is going to happen for a while unless the next generation does something quite radical um, fingers crossed that things are going to change but yeah I think it's absolutely part and parcel mm-hmm. of women's ex- some women's experiences today I know that Carmen Nirvana does a campaign I think right before the summer holidays where they kind of talk about do you think maybe you'll be sent sent away yeah during this time and I can't even imagine what that must be like for these women I mean yeah like it I can't even comprehend it. And when you're writing this article, you have to write the facts. You have to extricate yourself from the situation. But it was absolutely tough. Mm. Yeah, thinking about it now. Yeah, that's interesting about that's interesting about journalism. Whenever you read articles and stuff, uh, especially on kind of harrowing topics, as a reader, you might not even take into account the impact they might have on the journalists mm. themselves. Um, I think I read something on the Guardian recently about. Um, I think it was her name. The journalist was Kate Lyons. She tracked a family who just smuggled into Europe into the UK from Afghanistan and they smuggled back out because they felt that Britain had kind of abandoned them and the impact it had on her you can even tell throughout the article what it must have been like Mm. and to put that together over those months yeah it must have been absolutely draining Mm. and to not know where the family have gone as well that must play on her mind because she'd obviously got to know them I think at Mm. one point um yeah wow (laughs) it makes you think doesn't it it really it really really does and I think it's anything where you are coming into close contact with intimate parts of people's Mm. lives in order to do a good job and you know certainly I feel that way about the work that I do but I think it's the same with probation officers and social workers and teachers and journalists in order to do a good job talking about or or being within other people's lives you have to be open to being touched by it and to being connected to it otherwise it's a kind of exercise in observation and you're not really understanding you're not empathizing and you can't do any good work and and I think but it, it absolutely does take a toll and you have to look after yourself on which note I'm aware that it is coming up well it's 20 nearly 25 yeah. past so yeah. the sun has officially set <laughs> which means that you can break fast so, yeah um so is iftar the word just for anything that breaks fast or is it specifically a meal yeah it's basically it does specify the meal but it also specifies the breaking of that period during the day of fasting as well um so i'm choosing to break it with dates because that's how the prophet does it and also it's um I feel that if I break it with anything else, I'll end up either having a sugar crash or end up being abs- feeling like I'm going absolutely mad with energy for about 10 hours, which is great. But you can't eat after, I think it's 3.30. A.M. Yeah, 3.30 okay. a.m. So you do have a very narrow window. But for me, dates are quite light, quite filling, um, and water as well. I'm really looking to that. Yes, I've had a glass of water sitting next to some. <laughs> it's fine. Do you know what? Last year I worked at a magazine... Um, 
my seat was right next to the kitchen and I was fasting and we were working on a weekly so there wasn't that much scope to actually leave that much because I had to get a lot done mm. within the print pr- production process time um, that I can still smell that food torturing and tormenting me. <laughs> okay, so I, I won't torment you anymore. What we'll do is pause. I'll okay, go. I'll, in fact, I'll get you a jug of water. Thank you I think so the glass is going to be enough, and we will be back in just a moment. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Okay, so we are back. <laughs> feeling hydrated refreshed thank you yeah I really am it feels so weird when you eat you look so fortunate and then you eat. I can feel that I've got something in my stomach as well. and you're kind of like wow it, it, I mean you feel satisfied but you're also you're I'm also thinking about what I'm going to eat next it's like <laughs> it's never ending <laughs> and you chose to your meaningful food so now we can kind of go back to what would have been the beginning of yeah. the of the podcast and the breaking bread episodes always start with us sharing something um and so you chose dates as your meaningful food and why was that why are dates meaningful for you okay so there's a myriad of reasons actually so um the first one so the prophet actually broke his fast with um dates so for me that's quite that that stems from kind of my faith um secondly i remember dates being a very big part of kind of breaking my fast when i was much younger um even though i wasn't particularly religious i always remember it in my parents' house, my mum would break her fast with dates. I remember in summer spent in Beirut, um, half Lebanese, um, dates would always be there. So it was very much a part of my culture as well. Um, quite symbolic, really. So when I see dates, it always transports me back to those periods. Um, thirdly, I feel like dates are kind of a food that I reclaim as well. Um, I think with the whole wellness movement, kind of dates were kind of taken away from communities like mine and kind of repackaged and repurposed for a kind of very white middle class audience like oh my god have you heard of dates as if they never existed as if they weren't part of my childhood or as if they weren't part of communal fast say so for me it's a way of kind of reclaiming them back almost mm. so yeah that that is that is my third reason mm. I, there's something very very interesting 
taking on your third reason. There's something very interesting about the use of food in wellness. And again, I guess I come to it, I I don't know if I consider myself to be in wellness. I certainly kind of observe it quietly, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, But I I take an interest as far as I think it affects my clients um, and the the younger women that I work with who are influenced by food trends and diets and certain uh, lifestyle expectations that they're, they're seeing online. And so I think it's my responsibility to at least be aware of what's happening. And part of the reason I set up or kind of got more active on my Instagram was to provide a bit of um, evidence and balance to some of those narratives. But I think just as, as a as a black woman and as a, a black woman who's always been interested in food, what's interesting about wellness is that so much of the food of wellness stems from black and minority ethnic communities, whether that's dates, whether that's uh, the rise of turmeric as the new food of the masses, whether that's things like tahinis you mentioned in the break, all of these foods which, uh, and I said in a recent post, that kids would be scared to take to school because you know, they'd be thought of as a bit weird or they'd, they'd be eating smelly foods and they'd look different from the rest of the kids in their class. And now back as superfoods or the foods of wellness. Have you written about that or thought about that? And Or do you have any thoughts on it? Yeah, absolutely. I've got so many thoughts on it. <laughs> so, far too many, actually. Um, so for me, I, to start off with, I actually documented kind of how wellness how the wellness movement how I perceived it to kind of ostracise women of colour and I wrote it for the establishment which is an American it's a digital American magazine in 2016 in about June and actually I'm going to I'm going to read it out loud yeah absolutely that's okay so I'll just give a little background so um, I heard Osama first from an article she did for Balance magazine and Balance is a free uh, evidence based wellness magazine that's distributed in London and the title of that article was is wellness racist and it looked at really the lack of diversity in the wellness scene is that fair to say in 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 kind of uk wellness at the least yeah Um, but you're saying that that was yes a a shorter version of a a larger article yeah so the balance piece came out a year after and it was reflecting on how much had changed actually sadly not a lot had thankfully there were a few things that had but not a lot um, kind of the same kind of problems were persisting ethnic foods were being kind of ca- packaged and commodified to a certain group of people which was often white and middle class and what had actually happened was I'd taken the idea of how wellness ostracises people of colour whilst borrowing it off them in the first place to UK editors um, and some were really interested and they told me we cannot publish this we're not ready for this and what do they mean we're not ready for this because they told me so one um, it was quite a big magazine and I'd actually worked with a black editor on it she seemed to really love the idea but she came back to me after kind of much deliberation she was like our readers are 98% white basically they're not going to it wasn't the fact they were not going to appreciate it it wasn't the kind of content that they would read not that they would read that there was possibly a chance of offence which is so, so the risk was that by 
raising the issue of the lack of diversity in wellness would make the readership uncomfortable. Yeah, absolutely. That not without a shadow of doubt, that was one hundred percent it. And does it not make people of colour feel uncomfortable that their very own foods are being kind of repackaged? That's terrifying, really. So I'm gonna read it out actually sure, because go I ahead. feel if that's okay. Yeah, I absolutely. Like, absolutely. I feel like this encapsulates it better than my fasting brain could say. <laughs> so, so what I had written was this. So ironically, even as people of colour are noticeably absent from the clean eating movement, the, the movement's success depends on appropriating from non-white ethnicities. Ethnic foods, the same foods that people of colour were once shamed for eating, have now been re- repackaged and commodified to the masses as part of the wellness trend. So Zatar, Tahini, Medjool Dates, which I wrote my fasted, mm-hmm. and Zucchini, staple of my Lebanese diet for my Beirut-born mother seemed foreign or strange to my school friends who ate ham sandwiches and salt and vinegar crisps. I remember that. I was mm. the only one in my lunchbox who ever had anything weird and it was always... It was always... Everyone was always asking, what is that? Ugh, that looks weird. Mm. Ugh. And I felt very visible. I remember that. That's one of my earliest kind of recollections. Oh, I am different. Mm. And it's obviously... And it wasn't just me. Um, I, I, I write here that it featured a Hemsey and Hemsey recipe. These things like zucchini isn't that mad that you can come full circle that your own foods that you want shame for eating are now in a wellness book and I write here Greek food too has been absorbed into the movement a Greek friend who had scorned her cautious food is starting to embrace it now that it's fashionable it's frustrating that health bloggers pick and choose from cultures like mine that suits them but the real injustice is that their advice is only deemed worth heeding because it comes from a white face Mm. which I wrote um, I, I, I can see why that might be considered provocative right yeah. because it's it's very it's very challenging it's very confronting yeah. about um, about the nature of wellness it's and and what's really interesting about wellness is that oh, and diversity is that when people of color talk up about diversity they're actually viewed less approvingly than if a white person speaks up about diversity it's almost as if they're considered to be whining about it rather than talking from a place of experience it's it's extraordinarily interesting um and i was talking to on the flip side of that i was talking recently to a, a white woman who's a fitness blogger in the uk and she was saying look i'm aware of these issues and i do want to say something about it but I don't know if I'm going to be taken seriously or whether it's going to be mm. deemed that I'm stepping on people's toes or trying to kind of muscle in in an area that I might not be an authority or I might not be welcome. And so it becomes this thing that we can't really talk about. It's on one hand, are you whining? Are you complaining? Are you just kicking up a fuss about nothing? You know, can't we all share the food? Yeah. <laughs> Aren't we yeah. all friends? And on, on the other hand will I be seen as appropriating if I even try to talk about these issues? It's, it's really, really complex. And that's one of the reasons that, well, I kind of feel like if a psychologist can't have these difficult questions or at least kind of create a platform for them, then who, yeah. who can? It should be about being able to create opportunities for people to raise their thoughts, their issues, their opinions, for them to be listened to. And then we can have a discussion about it. Maybe you're right. Maybe you're wrong. Maybe there's something in the middle that's usually more yeah. like it. Yeah. Um, but isn't there something important in the, in the process of listening? Yeah. And I can agree more. I feel that 
the fact that a stance like that, it might, it's, when you kind of read it out loud, it certainly sounds provocative. It certainly sounds antagonistic. But I think I'm, some of the points that I raised were back then valid and to some extent are still valid today. Um, if we had um, a black woman or a, a woman that's not white, essentially, kind of releasing a cookbook with similar recipes, to what extent would she have the same success? And sadly, I don't actually think that would be the case because you you cook what you want to look like you cook you, you for me from what i've seen from documenting the wellness movement over several years and the articles that i've done people want to look like the person that's cooking rather than the food itself mm. the food is subsidiary really um so if you have like a if you are kind of if you resemble say madeline shaw you could look like her than then you're very attracted to cooking the food that she does if that makes any sort mm-hmm. of sense cook like me so it's more like about me. the aspiration the, the the aesthetic aspiration exactly. rather than a culinary interest in yeah. the, the flavors of the food exactly and i think there is an awareness among these kind of bloggers and eat clean kind of devotees that a lot of the food that they have put in their cookbooks they've never actually referenced or given the platform to people whose food it originates from mm. and that's troubling that's really problematic mm. and that and for communities who have long been shamed for eating these foods in public in offices in schools and now you now they're kind of put, put they're, now they're on goop say mm. but yours it still doesn't belong to you mm you don't feel that you can have an affinity with the with these foods almost that they've been borrowed off you that you're ashamed for it that you that they don't belong to you and so that's kind of why for me when i eat those dates they feel almost like i'm reclaiming it um so it's quite personal food in that sense because it's more than just a date it's about the history behind it for me kind of my kinship with my family what it meant to me when I used to go on holiday and then I see it in a cookbook or oh don't eat Haribos they're gross have a medjool day <laughs> which one blogger said have you read Michael Twitty's book Kosher Soul he is on on Instagram on do you know what Twitter. I don't think I have he's sourced kind of southern food like American Southern food back to its roots in slavery, that these are the foods that the slaves were making for themselves or for their masters. And it's just this, and he traces his family back through food um, and across the South and back into Africa and, 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 and all over. And it's, it's this incredible documenting of a, as of an individual life, but also a cultural history through its food and, and the arguments that happen now about, you know, whether Southern food is white or whether it's black. And actually, can we, again, can we go back to the roots? Can we recognize the origins of something? And, and kind of, you know, there's an interesting idea about whether something belongs to something and obviously I get that and I but I, and I but what I can hear is people saying well why does it belong to anyone but I think <laughs> I think what it is is about is about recognition and I think because food is so symbolic because it goes back to our cultural roots and our families and our, our individual histories it has enormous meaning um and I think if you're from a marginalised community uh, within, you know, a society of a different dominant race, the feeling is that you have so little. Mm. I think that 
that's certainly my my take on it is that you feel like you have so little and food becomes one of the things that keeps you grounded or keeps you connected to your culture or your people your sense of home or historical Mm. home and and I think it does feel very personal for a lot of people if that feels like it's being taken away and as you say kind of repackaged and shipped out and turned into something which is about aesthetic or trend rather than this deeply resonant thing that people have been eating perhaps for centuries um, yeah. in their cultures that's really interesting actually that is really interesting kind of perceiving it as having very little and then that being taken away from that certainly not a stance that I kind of thought before but yeah to some extent I, I would 100% agree with that um when I think, because anyway, Lebanon is a very small country anyway, so so the kind of foods that come out of it are quite distinct anyway. Um, you kind of hear about a lot of people being like, yeah, Lebanese food is having such a resurgence right now. And you're kind of like, I get that it's a resurgence. Why does everyone have to know about it? You feel almost protective of it in a sense because it's taking you years to, because it's, the thing is, because I'm half Pakistani as well, so I feel like I've got, I, I don't have both of these kind of um, communities. So, Indian food, anyway, has been massively accepted in Britain. I mean, the the bourgee is the national dish, dish after yeah. all. So being like, let's go for an Indian. That's very much part of the fabric of the UK. But Lebanese food is something that's taken longer to come to Britain um, and less accepted. Say, because I remember that. I think my when I was younger, I used to go to very far out places in London to get certain ingredients that you couldn't actually get mm. that you couldn't get in central London like you can now, and so when you say things like this being taken away from you and now that you can get something that we once went to maybe Acton we made a day of it <laughs> but you can get it maybe in a food hall now or in Tesco even mm. that's incredible really and but it also makes you think how, how did it how did it get to a point where it's actually become so accessible and you feel torn because obviously you would love your kind of culture and your food to get accepted into the mainstream but there's almost a point where you feel like you're almost it's almost betrayed because at what cost mm. that's, that sounds crazy I can hear myself but it makes you think doesn't it well this is, yeah. I mean, this is exactly what I mean I think people forget how much it means exactly like food really it hits kind of quite important places yeah um, and it's really interesting that it, you know that there is this way in which you feel protective over your food and you don't yeah. want people kind of stomping Shouldering in, in. <laughs> <laughs> and taking it and, and, and making it something different from what you know it to be yeah, yeah. that is actually food for thought isn't it <laughs> <laughs> um, you spoke about the different subjects that you've covered in your journalism and you studied sociology yeah that's right um, why why journalism why did you or how did you get into journalism? Why did you want to write stories? Okay. Um, so I did sociology in, as my undergrad at Sheffield. And I spent three years kind of exploring people, places, phenomena. So I did everything kind of health um, to ageism to far-right movements. And this is pre-Brexit. So this feels like a different era, actually. And every time I did these kind of modules and these essays, and I also a lot of my work was also on the 2011 riots. And then I did my dissertation on sex work as well. Um, 
each one of these each one of these kind of modules or issues that I kind of covered they were for me there was an endless source of fascination because it wasn't just so when we were talking about say far right movements it wasn't a simple case as people the National Front saying to protest in the East End um, and kind of racist attacks there was so much more to the story that they felt kind of maybe um, that the jobs were being taken away it was part of it was part of kind of historical social context and for me I realised that in everything we do and in every part of life in every person I count they all have a story and when I was at Sheffield I even my own campus I noticed a lot of things like sexism so I didn't really have a, an outlet to if I talked about it to people they thought I was mad by the way feminism in 20, 2011 it was still a dirty word believe it or not it hadn't actually crept into the mainstream like we've got like feminism on the runways now like it's been quite co-opted but it's still acceptable to be like yeah I'm a feminist that's a mm-hmm. that's a fashion and political statement you could write that now and not be called awful names so what I did was I wrote a blog about all the kind of sexism I saw on student campuses so everything on from student elections to promo girls so girls who were hired to like wear shorts and sell shots and I wrote about that and it really took off like I got a lot of um I got a lot of national press on it I got a lot of press for my student paper and then I end up winning an award for it and I was like wow I could maybe potentially look at doing this as a career and I was kind of giving platforms to people whose stories deserve to be told um so then I applied to City to do magazine journalism and I got a scholarship to do that so I was really proud of that um thank you um and then I went freelance in I think I went freelance in January 2016 and everyone was like to me oh you're making a massive error don't do it so what does it mean for again for people who aren't necessarily familiar with the terminology oh, what does it mean okay. what's the difference being freelance okay. and perhaps being so employed my for? experience of being freelance is I get to wake up in the morning I get to write what I want I get to cover the topics I want and a lot of the topics I cover kind of marginalised communities um, health and wellness um, kind of women that are revolutionising food and wellness worlds contemporary faith as well um, social justice so recently I've done everything as diverse as a woman leading the UK's like Bengali food revolution to a community magazine that's um, um, centred around Grenfell and kind of for survivors basis magazine for survivors and shedding light on the hope around that area so the difference for me is that I get the chance to pitch editors work with them on stories I want I get a longer amount of time to write them with love and with care not I'm saying that doesn't happen in 9 to 5 but with 9 to 5 it's very much about increasingly it's very much about writing a lot of things per day trying to get clicks per views which is great if you kind of can thrive under those circumstances but for me as a freelancer there is a lot of scope to pursue stories that wouldn't be in the mainstream and there for me there is not also a lot of people pardon me of color from white no from working class communities and that's from state schools and I feel like I bring I can I can write about things that if I didn't write about might be brushed on the carpet and might not get the chance to have that platform so my work as a journalist is more than just writing pen to paper it's actually providing communities with a platform that they might not otherwise have and shedding light on stories that might not actually be out there like Mm -hmm. I feel there are so many stories out there there's a story in everyone in every community but when you're when journalism which is for me 98% white middle class dominated these stories are just not simply coming out and there's not a commitment in this industry to diversify um 
the whole point of journalism is to reflect the kind of multiplicities of everyone's identities and experiences and lives but we're only when a certain amount of population is being is in those newsrooms how are we expected to read the stories of these kind of people and for me that's quite terrifying i think journalism needs to have a radical makeover i, I, I do mm-hmm. i sh- i shouldn't walk into a newsroom and be like i'm the only white uh, non-white person there i'm the only muslim um and when you are a minority in newsrooms i find it can be problematic because you're then expected you're then tasked with being the go-to person for writing stories. So I remember at one place I was expected to write a lot on Muslim women, which actually I do by choice. I really enjoy writing about faith. And it's not just Muslim women I write about. I write about Catholicism as well, witchcraft, kind of New Age movements as well, because the whole spectrum fascinates me. But when you identify as Muslim and a lot of your work is on Muslim women, you're then expected to write everything on this area. And I remember I went to an interview maybe last year for a job and bear in mind my portfolio is very diverse it covers a lot of different areas like food which is why I'm here today but it was missing women that he couldn't stop picking up on and so you end up perhaps being boxed in and it's it's if if you if this is not an area you want to associate yourself with or actually be like actually I'm much more my work is much more diverse than this and that's quite a scary area I know a male journalist who worked at a um, a digital news magazine I'm not sure they're st- no they're still around but they've done a lot of redundancies actually it's kind of gone down a bit and he was tasked with writing about Muslim communities for about a year and he did that under the pretext that he was going to move into something else because he actually didn't want to do it he wasn't it wasn't like he was uncomfortable with doing it it was because they were like well you're brown you're Asian you've got access to these communities you're going to do it and he thought the payoff would be great because then he'd end up doing what he wanted to do anyway it never panned out so he spent a whole year doing things he didn't want to do and now he is the go-to guy for these kind of topics and I never knew until I spoke to him that he actually didn't enjoy doing this and then you don't see a lot of brown Asian journalists in the media as it is and then to be boxed in once you've actually managed to get in there it's not a good position to be in so we need more diverse people in newsrooms we need more people covering different beats it shouldn't just be freelancers as well there should be people in the nine to five um covering these kind of things there's not it's not simply enough to be there for me i'm muslim but there are so many different muslims out there there's not one, one person one you can have a more casual relationship with your faith you, you might not um, but I can often find that when I'm writing things on Muslim women maybe there are some where I'm like maybe I sh- I sh- I'm not the right person to write that maybe someone who's veiled might actually be better off writing that mm-hmm. but I think a lot of the time these editors don't know women like that mm-hmm. so then they're like who do I know and then go from there mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. And I think there is this a burden, I think, if you're the only kind of minority person in a particular organization or building or um, in academia or an academic setting, um, the burden on you to represent all of <laughs> your yeah. culture all at once. I found it really... Uh, funny and sweet and poignant that there's this um there's this underground there was a tweet that went viral last week um of black women who can't cornrow (laughs) because the idea is that well if you're black here are the things that all black people can do um and i'm sure it's the same in other cultures all you know like you were saying earlier on that 
the the black woman on Love Island should be able to twerk. Um, I years ago, um, I used to have dreadlocks, um, and I was working somewhere, and there was a guy who who thought he kind of knew everything, and he was kept asking me for weed. He kept asking me like, and you know. And he was just like, you got dreadlocks, so you must smoke weed. You know, these... <laughs> Face palming right now, you can't see what I actually... Um, and, and, and so there's these kind of broad cultural assumptions that kind of get overlaid. Yeah. And the expectation is that you are those things, um, that they represent you and that, and that you identify with them, which might not be true of anything at all. Um, but I think that is an absolutely enormous subject which we could spend an awfully long time (laughs) Um, I'm wondering if there's anything that I've missed out is there anything that you want to say um, that we might have missed out on that I didn't ask you directly one interesting thing I think is how certain cuisines from communities of colour always come in and out so there's never space for them all to be popular all at the same time (laughs) It's always like, oh, have you tried this? It's Korean had a massive resurgence, and I don't see anything of that recently. And then it's Vietnamese um, now, I think. So I see. So there's never space for all of them to kind of coexist simultaneously, doing rather well. So I was like, oh wow, have you tried this new thing? And food becomes then a fetish almost. Like you just want kimchi earlier today, and. I love kimchi, but there's a point where it was absolutely everywhere, even on beauty websites. I'll put kimchi on your face, but that, yeah, something like that. But you, you won't see that now. So I feel like these foods come in and out of fashion. Mm. And it's also women's bodies as well. Like, you know how like arse is in right now. And it's like, why is a body part in, if that makes Mm. sense? Like why? And for me, I just, I find it really interesting because it makes you reevaluate because um, I did a piece, like I said, on this woman who's revolutionizing like Bengali food in England. What was her name again? Um, So her name was um, Tamina... As, oh, I forgot her surname. That's okay. awful. I forgot her surname. Ramadan brain. Sorry, people. I'll give it to you after. <laughs> no, 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 no. And she, and when I was documenting in the piece, it's um on Munchies, which is Vice's food channel. I was talking about how Indian has always had its time, and to some extent Pakistani as well. Mostly Indian though. But these curry houses that first existed in Britain were actually from Bangladeshi chefs, mm. but they've never had their time. Mm. Um, and I find that interesting you don't know maybe a decade on it'll have its moment but why has it I mean they arrived in the 1960s I think so why has it taken decades for them never to have their chance who determines what is in and what is not that's food for thought (laughs) all right so Salma if anybody wants to find you find your work chat with you on socials where can they do that okay great so my twitter is it's underscore me underscore salma um so that's basically it's me salma um i have a twin sister called Layla, so that's where the name came from where they're like oh it's you Layla, and i was like no it's me salma <laughs> <laughs> and then yeah you can find me on instagram as well um i use it as a workout now as well which is really weird for me so that's a classic underscore salma because if something happens I'm like that's so classic me um, I'm on LinkedIn as well 
Um, I'm easily findable actually I do that quite intentionally because I feel like um, whenever I do pieces I do often get messages from people all over the world mm-hmm. and I love to chat with them and get their insights so I make sure that I'm quite easily contactable in that sense mm-hmm. um, so yeah um, message me <laughs> okay so I'll put all the links to yeah. um, your contacts thank in you the so much for having notes. me thank you for joining me and thank you for your work thank I think it's you. fascinating and thank really you so much yeah. and um, yeah this has been really good and that's it thank you to Salma for sharing Iftar with me and your thoughts opinions and ideas in upcoming episodes I finally finally I know I'm sorry get around to talking about the food of the future and there might even be some live music coming too. Hit subscribe so you don't miss a thing. And that just leaves me to thank you very much for listening. And until next time, I wish you the very, very best of health. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.